and a very warm uh, good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it is for you right now. And welcome back to the Scott and Lars show. Welcome. Two dicks talking bollocks. Certainly are. It's currently mid-afternoon. Well, it's 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 at that point, Lars, isn't it? Where at, at what stage is afternoon, evening, you know? It's 16.39, 20 to 5. I'd call this afternoon. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm looking outside from my office window. Beautiful blue sky. Uh, one small drifting cloud. <laughs> a pin, a pinprick in an otherwise blue sky, and I can see the river from here. It's glorious. Uh, I'm feeling great, you know. So <laughs> it's a good vibe because. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, you were going Caribbean, were you? Because I thought you were doing Middlesbrough. Like, well, it's a fine date atop a belt films. Like, I think if I attempted West Indian, it would probably come out sounding slightly northern eastern, and like vice versa. I don't think I've got a <laughs> command on either, to be honest. I've blurred a line between them. You've so, blurred something, all right. Yeah, so I'll avoid accents here on because I'll probably inadvertently offend somebody. Yeah, I, I already regret a, an accent that I, I've done previously. So, um, you know, you live and you live. <laughs> no one's perfect. So, welcome back. And uh, we have discussed uh, the the... The 10 to 6, as it were, in our top 10, and we're now into the top 5. Now, I'm not going to go into our 10 to 6, because we did that previously, obviously. I want you to go back and listen to them. If you've just joined at this stage in the proceedings, welcome. <laughs> A very warm welcome. Yeah. But I what would, are you doing? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd phrase it maybe a little bit more Don't start in the middle. That. Well, yeah, don't start in the middle. Go back and, and we'll see you back here, you know. We'll, we'll be waiting for you. So... Yeah, we've we spent a lot of time discussing some films that we think the world of, but they haven't quite made the top five, have they, Lars? No. And so um, here we are at the top five, and I don't know about where yours sit with you in comparison to the rest of the top ten, but th- for me, these are like a, a very kind of distinctive top five. Mm, yeah. I mean, I talked about a film that I adore at number six, but no, I mean, for me, I think these five that are coming up uh, are just somehow... I, I can't believe I keep saying it. They're just better for me. I prefer them. Hmm. So, well, yeah, you're... obviously, uh, hence why they're in the top five. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to kick us off, I believe, Lars, with your number five. Okay. Well, coming in Number five with a bullet is uh, is Hot Fuzz. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. Now, this came up at some point earlier, didn't it? And I did. I did wonder. I did wonder. Mm. I, I, I'm not a devotee of uh, either Edgar Wright nor of uh, of Simon Pegg, but uh, I remember going to watch um, I think Hot Fuzz in the in the cinema on release day, and we got uh, some sort of special uh, event deal that they were doing where you got Shaun of the Dead for free and a poster for Hot Fuzz and cheap popcorn or something and something else. And I, I wish that people did more of that sort of thing, you know, make going out to the, the cinema perhaps more of an event and, and perhaps more people will go because, you know, especially with all this uh, this pandemic, mm. uh, we haven't been able to go to the cinema. And I think people are, are going to have to be enticed back. Anyway, we're talking about Hot Fuzz. And, and for me, I love Hot Fuzz in its own right as a, as a film, as a, as a sort of an action comedy at the same time, I love it 
just as much. And, and when you sort of fuse the two, you understand why it means so much to me. I love it almost as, as itself, as a film, and as a film where it pays off almost every single little thing that it sets up. <laughs> There's yeah. so many little references, so many little things, winks and nods and, and you know, knowing comments from certain characters and, and, and that sort of thing. It's so complete. It's so smooth. It, I, I really think uh, as a filmmaker, I think you should watch this film and, and see, you know, how to sort of set things up, pay them off and really establish characters without having to make it feel like you're sort of running in the snow sort of thing. You know, it, it, it can be done and, and made part of a, a quite a fast paced sort of, um, you know, funny buddy cop. Uh, drama, not drama, comedy probably be the, the word for it. Anyway. Dramedy. Uh, Dramedy. Yes. Uh, and, and so, I mean, and I've watched this quite recently, kind of, again, you know, <clears throat> now I do tend to look at things from a writer's point of view, because I have, I've done that. I've written a book and mm. I, I do kind of, without even trying to just examine it now from a writer, because I would love to go into screenplay writing. I'd love to. And I've got, I've got ideas. Mm. Um, so naturally now I do watch films with that point of view. And like you said, Lars, this is, very well written and yeah there are these these little strands that that come back it's almost like a you know an episode of Kirby enthusiasm but just not at the same time and <laughs> um, it's it's certainly my favorite in the cornetto trilogy uh, yeah all, all of which of course are different films it's and you also talked about the cinema didn't you this is like one of the mm. ultimate films to see in the cinema because it's so much fun I think there'd be yeah. so much, so much communal laughter at some of the the the, the little jokes, that, you know, the wit witticisms, um, the zingers that, that come out, but then also <laughs> some of the slapstick stuff as well. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the violence is very notable at times in this film. There are sure. a few a few moments where I think there would have been a, a communal gasp in the cinema, like, wow, <laughs> that that was that was graphic. Well, for example, when you when you've seen some shears plunged into someone's <clears> throat. That's that's quite graphic. Well, that's not even the bit I remember. I remember. No, I bet. <laughs> I remember part of a church falling, and, and oh yes, on, yeah, yeah. And I remember um, flat. Yeah, and I remember a, a model village moment. Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, all three are, are really quite. Um, uh, they take you back at, at how violent they are, really. So yeah, all those things combine into what is just an incredible all-round film for me. But mm. yeah, would be best seen in the cinema. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a, obviously, you know, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are a natural sort of duo. But I think the, the super serious uh, Nicholas Angel versus uh, Nick Pegg's, uh, Nick Frost's character, um, Danny... No, I'm afraid. We call him Danny. Uh, well, yeah. They, um, they're, they're, they're... I'll talk again in a minute. Their relationship is, is, is brilliant. You know, Danny, who's sort of like... An, an oaf and, and just wants to sort of, you know, do his dad proud and, and you know, joining the family business is, is the police. So, you know, he's, he's a frequently uh, drunk and, and he gets, a, you know, Angel arrests Danny without actually knowing that he's a, a police officer. And with, with Angel, again, he's almost his, his own worst, worst angel. Uh, worst. <laughs> his own worst angel. Oh, can you believe it? He's his own worst enemy. It's an understandable really... Freudian slip, Bobby. Quite. Uh, it, you know, he just can't. He can't switch off. He's married to the job, almost archetypal sort of policeman, you know, 
honor and, and duty and, and all the rest of it. And he's so good that they send him away because he's, he's making all the other officers look bad. And he yeah. gets sent away to this sort of quaint little village in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> it's Gloucestershire somewhere, you know, isn't it? I think it's meant to be. Yes, that's right. And, you know, they're, they're, they're far more concerned with winning sort of pretty village of the year. And uh, they, they, they let the young kids drink in the bar. And, you know, they, there's all sorts of accidents that happen. And everyone keeps keeps saying, you know, oh, you know, don't be silly. It's just an accident. And, and, and more and more people sort of keep dying. And, and naturally, Angel being the, the cop first, almost person second, he's investigating with with every sort of tool that he's got at his disposal and you know that that combination of angel and danny where angel needs to learn to be a human and to switch Mm. off and uh, having lost his his previous girlfriend really through his inability to you know step away from the job and and danny wanting not so much a father figure but someone he looks up to, someone who has done what he feels like he wants to do. And the, the realisation that actually, you know, Nicholas's point of the, the notebook is the most powerful weapon that a police officer has. And that it, it actually, again, without trying to spoil too much, comes back full circle again. It actually does prove itself to be a vital bit of kit, not necessarily for what's written in it, but it's, but, it's another wonderful little payoff. Yeah, and, and the, the notebook is kind of one of those little tropes that's often not trotted out. That's not correct. Well, it's, it's not trotted out in this film anyway. Um, but in, in kind of films that are based around that line of work, you know, you've got you've got the one person who's diehard by the book and then you've got his, the person he doesn't want to be paired with, quite frankly, who's a little bit more renegade and that dynamic plays out. And, and I can't think of another film really where it's, it's more enjoyable than in this. Mm. And I, we talked about like all-star casts. You've got to mention yeah. some of the names. I mean, besides the obvious, Bill Nye's in this. At the, Bill, yeah. ba- Bill Bailey's in this. Yeah. Uh, Steve, Steve Coogan, Martin Steve Freeman. Merchant. Steve Merchant's in it. Timothy Dalton's <laughs> in it. Yeah. And then like Paddy Considine's in it. Olivia Coleman's in it. There's so mm. many names in this. And um, Paddy Considine, I mean, I, <laughs> I've got to talk about the, well, no, I won't talk about them. I'll just mention them. I think if you, even if you've, uh, well, no, I would suggest watching the film before you watch this. But the outtakes for Hot Fuzz are wonderful. And Paddy Considine in particular features in a couple that I, I, I can just look back. I can just see them now. <laughs> and of course, um, you know, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, there's the, the in the, the changing room. I don't know. Pub? You know what I mean, Lars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so just watch the film and then watch. Please do watch the outtakes as well because they're they're wonderful, absolutely yes. wonderful. I I think there's you know there's 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 fewer more times where I've you know what I'm like for a satisfying ending and to to have everything sort of tied up so nicely, even when you know perhaps I can't actually say that without ruining anything, so I I won't. But yeah, <laughs> uh, everything ties together so so lovingly. And after a really high octane ending, it has to be said, um, the film really builds to its ending. Actually, that that doesn't detract from it in any way. You know, there's this this such such a, a beautiful way that the film frames it that the angel really could be wrong that it could just be a sleepy little town and that you know accidents happen. 
and, and you know the, the more and more he sort of begins to you know pick away at the the edges of this cloak that's sort of over the the, the really what's going on is is really well done it's it's clearly a yeah. labor of love and uh <clears throat> god bless them all i i love watching it this is my favorite thing they've done i i, I really enjoy other things obviously Shaun of the dead a lot of people that would cite that as their favorite probably and then to complete the cornetto trilogy it was the the is it the world's end or the end of the world or something like that the, the world's end i think that's really enjoyable and then up uh, paul I, I loved paul i presume you've seen that was yeah yeah i, have, I thought i've seen the world's end though oh have you not uh, the world's end's really no. good Bill Nye appears again in that, not that you'd necessarily notice him. That's, yeah, The World's End's really good. I, I think most people would probably say Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are the, the stronger two in the trilogy, but yeah. uh, do not listen to a comment like that and decide not to watch The World's End because it's really good. Uh, I think they've done something lately called Truth Seekers or something like that, which I need to watch, which sounds interesting. So th- these oh, guys... yes, yeah. Yeah, th- these guys have Sorry. honed their craft down the years... And Hot Fuzz probably sits somewhere in the middle of their filmography, really. But it's, yeah, it's my favourite as well, Lars. And um, I'm, I was glad to hear you say it, if that wasn't yeah. evident from when I did hear you say it. I mean, it's so, it's so funny that it's such an English film in so many ways. And yet it's almost a, a, a pistache of those, those sort of famous American sort of cop drama uh, shows and, and films. Uh, I think it's it's such a such an amusing little parallel, really. And as you say, a, a former James Bond playing uh, a, a suspicious, shall we say, supermarket owner. It's mm. it's. It, I just, as I say, I you know, I we're, we're struggling not to give away too much because I think you can tell that we 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 bother to go this far that we really do love these films that we're talking about, and um, I, I I think you. <laughs> We, I can only implore you to, to bung it in. And if there is any cost to you, um, then please send me an itemized bill and I will pay it if you do not like it. Uh, that's how much I believe in this film. Yeah. I've got nothing to add there. I agree. I agree. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Right. Okay. Right. Um, this is my number five film of all time. And I think of all the top five, this might be the one that I could probably talk for the longest about. Hmm. So let's just see how that goes. <laughs> let's set, set a timer, Loz, because I could yeah. talk about this film. For, so, I hope everyone's sat down. Yeah, I hope you are. Uh, and I hope you're comfortable. So it's become apparent time and time again that I, I love kind of the 90s aesthetic of, of film. And, and although this isn't in the 90s, it does... It sits just outside of the 90s in 2002. And it, it, it still kind of has that, that same vibe, I guess. It's a film by M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Shyamalan. Who has, uh, should we say, an interesting repertoire of films. Most yeah. people probably think of The Sixth Sense. Um, Unbreakable, which I love. And The Village, mm. which I mentioned earlier, I guess a bad rap, but I think it's superb for the most part, including the ending, which is very divisive as a twist. He also did one of the weirdest fantasy films ever called The Lady in the Water, which most people probably haven't seen. Mm. And I think most people would hate it. I don't think it was well received. But again, I love the idea of it. Uh, it was a very interesting film. But anyway, I'm talking about his best film, Lars. And it's not The Sixth Sense or any of the aforementioned. 
Uh, certainly not the last Airbender either. No, did, it's... did he do? Did he do signs as well? Lars, that's what we're talking about, son. Signs is his best film for me by some distance. Um, I don't know if it's universally seen that way, but I'm about to tell you why it is. So <laughs> this is a film that I guess, well, it, you'd probably call it a sci-fi thriller, mystery maybe. You, you rarely see horror like attached to this. But, mm. but for me, right, this, this is the, the, the scariest film ever made, or at least the film that has scared me the most. And I'll get into that, obviously. But um, I, I kind of want to explain why I love the movie, first of all. So I should probably explain how I first came to see it. Circa 2000, well, I suppose it would have been 2002, the year it came out. I would have been about 14 but, or 15. I, didn't we go and see it together? We might have done, probably off the back of me saying we've got to see this film. I'll tell you why. Because I saw it ahead of the rest of the UK. Because Oh, I, yeah. I was at Sorry. Universal Studios Orlando mm. uh, back when, of course, films were released to the US a lot earlier, like four months earlier, you know, at times. And yeah, it was Universal Studios. It was a place called City Walk, which is it. City Walk is kind of like the conduit between the theme parks and the car park. Everyone sort of funneled like lemmings through this district of bars and restaurants and shops and and then this giant cinema, which is like multiplex in the true sense of the word. Uh, is this too much detail? <laughs> Screen six, <laughs> row four, bag of revels. And um, I got roped into seeing this film by my dad because based on the blurb and like the photos in sort of the foyer, th this kind of looked like a mystery about crop circles, which was right up Dad Street and maybe not so much mine at that age. But given I'd kind of dragged him around roller coasters and like churro stands all day, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm glad I obliged. In fact, I'm very glad I obliged because that was quite possibly the most intense and memorable film viewing experience I've ever had. And it will stay with me for the rest of my life. So let me get into the film because this could go on for, for decades. Clearly. Signs follows the, I think it's the Hess family who are like in Pennsylvania as these crop circles start appearing all over the world. One of which is essentially in their backyard in the cornfields that surround their home, right? And I guess the basis of this film is exploring what happens to this family and the rest of this close-knit small-town community as these incidents start to escalate. And so I guess with this film, I want to make sure I try and talk about, one, why I think it's such a brilliant piece of work, and two, I really do have to try and emphasise or convey why it is, for me, genuinely the scariest film ever made. Hopefully I can achieve both of those things. Let's find That's out. Quite, quite a bold statement. There. I know. Well, it, I know it's, I know it to be true, but like, am I going to be able to convey that? I don't know. Let's, let's just find out, I guess. So why do I think it's such a brilliant film, first of all, and criminally underrated? <laughs> <clears throat> because, so it, it focuses on a close-knit community and it's, it, it, Pennsylvania is where Amish country is, which I've, I've been to Amish country, and you get the sense this town is just down the road from there, you know? And there are some very strongly held beliefs by people in the town. And yes, you guessed it, this is another film that kind of deals in faith, a bit like I was talking about Contact, uh, and it does it brilliantly here. Mel Gibson plays Graham, the like father of the family, and in fact a former father in terms of being a, a ex-reverend 
who recently lost his faith after an incident, which <clears throat> is quite integral to the film in a number of ways, and I won't go into that here. But as this phenomenon develops, which of course he sees firsthand in his backyard, you sort of witness him grappling with not only what's happening right now in front of him, but sort of what could be about to happen, but also with his past as well. And he does it superbly. It's certainly the best acting performance of Mel Gibson's that I've seen. And it's backed up uh, brilliantly by his brother Merrill, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix. So I said Joaquin Phoenix was going to come up earlier on, and this is where he comes up. You weren't lying. And also the two children in the family. It's, it's perfectly casted, and it really gives you a sense of how it would transpire as a family to go through this type of experience and uncertainty together. And the, the name Signs is kind of explained by a series of things which happen in the film, which involve all the different family members individually. And it sort of comes together, uh, which, of course, I won't go into again. But the, the writing of this and how that happens is majestic. Every scene is majestic. It does have that like 90s tint over it, like I said, which is perhaps what made it hit me doubly hard at times when I first saw it, because I probably went in expecting another film like Contact, which I did watch, I think, again, in Florida, you know, around maybe a couple of years before. I'm sure I saw Contact in the cinema in Florida. And I probably went in, again, at that age, expecting another Contact, which I couldn't appreciate at the time. And then I got... I got shot to ribbons by this film at times. <laughs> so, so let me, I guess, get on to why it terrified me. Because that might be what some people are interested to hear. You might have watched this film and thought, no, th th what? So let me try and get into why this had the impact on me that it did in, in, in terms of fear. So there's kind of, the, the, well, there's the overarching sense of like suspense and, and fear of the unknown, you know, especially within a community that, almost has everything they thought they knew thrown into jeopardy and they're having to contend with that as well. And then you think about other things that make up a good, like, scary film. The soundtrack, like, the, the, the music is totally haunting in this film and perfect in each moment that requires it. I think probably this is my favourite score in a film or the best suited. Wow. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's so much a cut above everything else I can think of, particularly in Shyamalan's uh, repertoire. I don't, I don't know who was in charge of the score, but it's, it's so perfect. This is the only film where the first second scared me. And I'm talking about the credits, like, and I'm deadly serious here. It's, it's the mixture of the start of the soundtrack where the, the strings come in and the font of the, the, the titles is on screen. It's very unnerving and foreboding. And so uh, what else contributes to a good scary film? The setting. How many times do we see like a, a house, you know, being the almost like a lead character in a film, Amityville, or don't get me started on Insidious, the stuff like that. The Shining. Well, yeah, the the, um, the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, sure, indeed. So the the setting with this, it is very much a Pennsylvanian large house, farmhouse almost, surrounded by cornfields, and this corn is like eight feet tall. And yes, of course, Shyamalan plays with this in the film. There are like scenes that play out that involve having to traverse the, the fields. And like I said, the fear of the unknown, it, it's no different to being in the dark. Like you have no sense of scale of what's in front of you or even worse, what could be behind you. You know, the only time you get a sense of scale with these fields is from shots that happen from like an upstairs window and it's like a view looking out. And then it's a totally different state of fear in a way because you realise just how surrounded you are by these fields. And even from there, you can't see what's in them. The, the, the swaying of the crops that kind of move individually in the wind, it, that plays with your mind. 
think back to paranormal activity you know you're looking for things and it's chilling it gets in your head but the thing is what i've described so far is kind of how to set a mood sort of create tension and a a sense of dread but there are a couple of standout moments that I, i have to mention for just being literally breathtakingly scary to me Traditionally in horror, you get maybe the best or slash worst scares towards the end, where it ups the ante a bit. And that, that's probably the case in this film for most people. But I'd rather talk about a couple of ones in the first half of the film. And the very first scare, if you like, it, it's very much a mini one. It comes out of nowhere during a bedtime conversation. And then there's a glance upwards from Mel Gibson and the discovery of something on the roof. And we're not quite sure what that something is because it's a silhouette at night. But it's done masterfully. And if you're not already kind of feeling tense about what's to come, that really sets the stall out that, okay, this is going to, this is going to be unnerving, you know? Mm. And all this builds towards, for me, the, the single most terrifying thing I've ever seen in a film. And I could do an episode on this alone. And it's around the halfway mark in the film. And this kind of collective sense of unease, like I talked about, it all builds up to this point. And this is like the first proper sighting and it's, it's actually seen around the world as it's shown on the news from footage that was taken from like a kid's birthday party in, in Brazil. And everything I mentioned, like the soundtrack and the setting, and that all plays a part in this one. You, like I say, you see one of them for the first time. And it's done in such a way where you realise that you, you've, you've already been looking at it for about three seconds, but it's kind of camouflaged or covered because of where it stood. And then it like pops out. Uh, if I say pops out, that kind of makes it sound like sooty or something, popping up from behind the table or something. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> no, no, it, it, what I mean is it, it just, it steps out, like almost quite nonchalantly. Like it's not a jump, you know, it just, it steps out into an alleyway and the, and the reaction to it is so chilling. I think that's what constitutes horror for me a lot of the time, the reaction, you know? It's you, you see these stereotypical screams in films and you think, well, if you're in a state of total fear, that's not how you'd react. If anything, mm. quite the opposite. If you are transfixed with fear, you don't have the breath to scream. You, you'll open your mouth and something will come out, but it will not be a scream. It will be a noise you've probably never heard yourself make before. And Meryl, Joaquin Phoenix, is watching this on TV and his reaction is a bit like that. Uh, and it's more or less exactly how I reacted to it in the cinema. I've never been so polarised and gripped by something. We talked about Jurassic World. That does a similar thing, Buzz, with the Indominus Rex. It's kind of hiding in plain sight in a moment, and it's camouflaged. And then it just mm. slowly presents itself. And um, Actually, whilst we're on the subject, Jurassic Park 3 deserves a mention here, because there's a scene on a bridge with a pterodactyl where it just, oh, yes, yeah. it just slowly emerges out of the mist. And, it, and it's, it's the fact that it's done in such a slow way. It's still effectively a jump scare, but it's just not done cheaply as a jump. But this, this birthday party scene is on another level even to that. Um, and it's followed almost immediately by another scary scene, scene which <laughs> involves the house of a guy called Ray Reddy. I won't go into that scene, but Ray Reddy is actually played by Shyamalan himself who, who likes to put himself into each film in some shape or form and there's a scene with a family meal which is it's kind of treated almost like the last supper at the time mm. and the tension in it is so visceral again it's another scene that's perfectly written directed acted everything there, there are two dogs in the family as well and i mean who doesn't love dogs 
And the way that's handled is chilling beyond belief as well. I mean, the, the scenes that involve the, the two dogs in the family might be the moments that scar some people for life, maybe like the birthday party bit did for me. I don't know. I've, I've talked enough about this now, and I'm sure I've managed to convey the effect <laughs> this film had on me. But like I say, it's not just about the nostalgia of that first viewing. It continues to get better every time I see it. I love the fact it deals with, in faith in the way that it does. That is something that makes this film what it is. It, um, someone I spoke to said, oh, I, the moment I found out it was about faith, I couldn't get into it. And I thought, oh, weirdly the opposite for me. It was the fact, mm. that, it, it, the fact that that was a um, prominent, predominant, factor in this really added to everything else um it's a masterpiece it, it's a film i could watch once a month for the rest of my life and and uh, frankly i find it hard to believe the four films have been made which i prefer <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes this, what, is, this is one of those times where i am not at all surprised to hear that this is is you know so close in fact i'm i'm probably surprised it's not closer to uh, to number one than it is i mean <laughs> it's it's one of those films where I mean, to say it's about religion is probably as accurate to say it's about aliens. It, it features both, but wouldn't say that necessarily either are, are, are the definitive themes. Uh, mm. Certainly organised religion anyway. Um, well, in, yeah, and in, 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 in that sense, it's more faith than it is religion, if you like. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and that sort of... I, I, I don't want to... Um, you know, because there's something that you s skated away from, which I don't want to sort of throw naked into the light. But um, yeah, the, you know, it's it's what how strong is the family really, and and you know uh, what are you willing to go through? How um, if you stick together, how much can you achieve? That it it can al almost have a bit of a, a gloomy sort of overlook in in a way, and oh, yet definitely, yeah. really. At its heart is is it, the message that it gives is kind of quite heartwarming. Oh yeah, absolutely, and that is that is almost the ultimate journey to go on emotionally with watching a film, mm. and this does it so masterfully. It's wonderful. It's just it's I love it so much. It's the film I've watched the most recently. I think of everything that's on this list. Wow. Um, I genuinely I could watch it once a month for the rest of my life, and I, I moved into this this new place and I got a, a sick new TV and. Um, I love to get up close to it because of the quality that it's capable of and, and the size of it and headphones go in. And the first film I watched here was 1917, which was jaw-droppingly cinematic. But I knew that I had to watch Signs. That had to go high up on the list. Like, let's see if I can even experience something new out of this film, even though I've seen it maybe 15 times, if not more, I don't know. You know, let, let's watch signs on this screen with headphones in and just almost try and get the ultimate experience or something close to that first experience that I had back in in Universal's Cineplex, which mm. I'll never forget, Lars. It was... I can it, tell. It, it changed me. It, like, it kind of changed me. <laughs> yeah. And then, to, to close this out, I guess, because of time, there's a quote in the film, Swing Away, Meryl. And um, <laughs> this this is probably one of the most quoted films, uh, quoted quotes in any film for me. It's become almost somewhat of a running joke, particularly with Dad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that insert away, Meryl, that applies to, yes. so, to so many things. And I've said that goodness knows how many times down the years, probably to a lot of people who haven't know what I'm talking about. And, yeah, I, but, I've certainly heard you use it, yes. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, I guess it's done on this understanding that people know what I'm on about, and most people don't. So it's like, 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, whether you're talking about signs or whether you're talking about anything else, people people struggle to know what you're on about. So you know. I, yeah, I've got no um, repost for that. It's, <laughs> I, I, I've got to hold my hands up and agree, sadly. Right, let's... Uh, so, signs are just... Like I say, we're into the top five now, and I, I think it's probably apparent from just hearing me talk about signs that we're really now into things that have just had an amazing impact on me. So, I'll look forward to getting to number four, but even more so, I'll look forward to your number four, which comes first, class. Indeed. But do you mind if I quickly pause this just to go to the toilet first? <laughs> <laughs> you and your squirrel blood. Well, bless yeah. it, Pee away, Meryl. Okay, Lars. Well, so, yeah, science was my number five. What's your number four? This is one of the more recent films, or at least that's the way I think of it. And I have been careful with my expectations to try and avoid as best as I can sort of recency bias because I, I am aware that, you know, there is that thing of sort of if you've just seen a film and for the first time you're like, oh, that's really great. And then actually when you're doing something like this and you sit down and you compare it next to all of the films you've ever seen in your life to try and give it a fair go at the, uh, at the title, then you've got a job on your hands. Yeah. But this film is uh, by Christopher Nolan. Oh, okay. And it's Interstellar. Right. Now, I, I, again, was not particularly a Christopher Nolan fan. I'd seen the Christopher Nolan, uh, at least the two of the Batman uh, trilogy by this point. And I'd also watched, I think, Inception by then as well. And uh, Memento, which I must admit in my head, I, I hadn't actually credited to Christopher Nolan. But I bought Interstellar, really, I have to say, because I thought it'd be interesting and it was fairly cheap at the time. I hadn't seen it when it originally came out. I certainly hadn't seen it in the cinema and I hadn't heard a, a, a degree of, of amazing things uh, mm. from friends or, or necessarily reviewers. And it just sort of, you know, I thought, well, at the very worst, I'm going to get some cool sort of space graphics. Nolan is, is always popping in these, these, you know, mind breaking uh, set pieces and I like the cast you know Ma Matthew McConaughey Anne Hathaway uh, Jessica Chastain John Lithgow I, I always like and Michael Caine Matt Damon Matt Damon Matt Damon but yeah uh, to, to, to start us off right Interstellar is, is basically a dystopian future where on earth things are, are struggling to grow and obviously if, if, if you can't grow crops then really you're struggling to feed the population and yeah. the, it's uh, they're all trying to, to find a way to work around it, try and, and, and find a way to sort of uh, forge the new path for humanity. And the subject of potentially leaving the Earth behind, so I do believe there's some sort of colonization outside of Earth, whether it's, I think it's the moon or somewhere, there is a small sort of colony beginning outside of Earth but nothing really to sustain the numbers, obviously, that we're talking about with the, the, the people left on Earth. Well, it's a bit like you're talking about and, Damon, right? Elysium did this uh, with, like, an elite Yeah, team. Yeah. But anyway, we're not talking about Elysium. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no. But, yeah, they're, they're looking for, essentially, a way out. And it becomes... A, a, they learn of a wormhole near Saturn. And it's through this wormhole that they're hoping that they could gain access to a part of the galaxy that they couldn't potentially live through to get to, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I know that their technology is, is only of a certain level 
where I think they still can sort of go into stasis, but to actually cope with, uh, you know, going to sort of the other end of the galaxy, I just don't think is, is capable for them. But this wormhole does offer them sort of uh, a Hail Mary in terms of what they, they could actually do to escape this situation. Uh, they need a pilot to go through. They don't actually really understand quite where they're going to come out the other end, if they're going to come out the other end, and, and what's going to happen. And so Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, uh, who's a devoted father, he has to leave his, his daughter and his, his son behind and, and go off into space knowing that he, he may never come back again. But if he doesn't go, there's no future for them or, or anyone else on Earth. And I, I have to say, Interstellar, I... I I don't know whether it's, I, I wouldn't say I had low expectations because as I say, I, di- I did have some expectations of it's, it's a Christopher Nolan film, uh, even if I wasn't particularly a fanboy. And I'd, I'd certainly, you know, seen some sort of snippets from it that, you know, looked really cool, certainly. But I was not ready. I was not prepared for how hard this film hit me emotionally. And I am certainly not ashamed to say by the conclusion of the film, I was in bits i was an emotional wreck uh the tears were running from my eyes and uh, oftentimes that sort of narrative of uh the the father and the child and you know the doing whatever you can to get back and be a family again because that's what's important that that comes up time and again throughout throughout interstellar and really got its hooks in me in a way that i was not expecting yeah I think, uh, so no sorry go on no no please oh no just well i guess my thought there was yeah parenthood and family just throughout some of the best films in general that is a, a predominant factor or running narrative that really is something that gets its talons into you as a viewer and pulls you in emotionally and and yeah like i, I do you know what i'm not sure i've seen this all the way through so I'm probably not fit to comment. Uh, I, I kind of, I think this is a film I sort of saw the start of, and it wasn't in the right setting. It was, I think it was in like a hotel room or something. I think, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, the, the, this one really, I think, to get the most out of it, uh, like like Memento in its way, is I would probably recommend being absolutely stone cold sober, sitting there, no phone, no nothing, and just sort of taking it in. Uh, because it's beautiful. It's, it's, it, I was actually sad when it ended, and yet I was glad when it ended because it had wrecked me. Yeah. But I, I cannot remember the last time I walked into a film with with having so little attached to it that I, I felt such an attachment to immediately. It was one of the, the first times that I've, I've started saying to people, you know, what, what's the last great film that you watched? It's Interstellar because... Uh, it was forged such a place in, in my psyche. And there's this really interesting bit towards the start where he's gone on his mission and he's woken up at sort of the, the, the other end of the wormhole. And he realizes that he thought that he might be able to periodically awake and, and send messages back to Earth. And he awakes to find that his children have been sending him messages for the the entire duration of his trip. And he obviously wasn't aware that he would just be out the entire time. So they've grown and, you know, grown up and grown old in the time that he's been away and how that reflects in 
I mean, for for a time, his his daughter sends uh, a message. I think it's whether it's every year or every five years that they let them send a message, and she's kind of hopeful to start with because she's just a kid. Then she grows up and she sort of starts to resent the fact that her dad's away and they're they're still struggling at home. And and then eventually, uh, her brother picks up because she refuses to speak anymore because she's grown so sort of disillusioned with the whole process. Are, are you even still out there? You know, are you, are you even listening? What's the point in any of this? I, I, I mean, seeing his face, knowing that, you know, he can see his own daughter years into the future, as far as he's really concerned, losing her faith in, in whether he's even alive anymore, whether he's and, and feeling betrayed that he's a, she, he's abandoned her to this barren wasteland that is now the world. And, and, and they're, they're struggling. That's incredibly um, powerful. Um, yeah, I certainly didn't get far enough into the film to, for it to touch really deeply into those kind of things, because I think if surely, well, you would know lots about me, that that's the type of thing that would really get get me like pulled in um, and emotionally engaged, that that type of thing. In, in a way, I recommend it with, with a warning, because <clears throat> I, I'm not a, a, a soppy person, but at the same time, you know... Um, I'm 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 emotionally available to uh, films that I believe earn it, so I would recommend this film with a warning because, as as I say, to, some, to um, someone who is quite soppy or, or um... to to anybody, but be be aware that you will react. If this does not provoke an emotional response from you, then I might consider handing myself into police because you may well be a psychopath. Uh, that's that's it. Handing my yourself opinion. into police because I might be a psychopath. No, handing yourself in. Oh, I see. So I thought you said handing yourself in, as in myself. No, don't don't hand me in. Hello, is this police? Yes, I'd like to uh, report Lost Beach for recommending me a film called Interstellar. <laughs> I'm going to give you yeah. this phone number to call. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah. No, I, I well, I, I am the soppy type you know if it's done well i mean that's come up time and time again so far in the films i've mentioned and, and yeah. I do, if it's done well i can very strongly uh, attach myself sentimentally to to a narrative particularly if family are involved and mm. so uh yeah i'll heed well, your warning oh, before this one well, it'll ev- go on the everyone's list, got a family cautiously so yeah it's a it's a good in isn't it but yeah, it, it, it's it's um, you know so impressively captured on film. It's uh, very well acted, as far as I'm concerned. The the plot is great. It's uh, uh, yet another one of those films where I can't honestly say that I saw really almost any one bit of it coming. Maybe I'm not being generous there, but I genuinely don't think so. Well, um, I really, really cannot go far towards the end with without giving almost the entire game away. But it's really a, a, literally an emotional roller coaster. And I've so rarely heard other people speak so highly about it. And honestly, I think if you if you can really put yourself into this film, I don't think you'll regret it, but my God, it will it will stay with you. And, and after all, uh, be it a happy experience or a sad experience, we're all here surely for experiences. And, and this film will guarantee you one for sure. Well, two things. It's Christopher Nolan. So obviously he's appeared for you already in this top 10 with The Dark Knight. And he's appeared for me in the top 10 with Memento, which was like my number seven. So I've got the utmost respect for him as a filmmaker. Did you say stasis had a lot to do with this? Like Because, uh, I, or, or at least it involves the idea of stasis, because 
some of my favourite films I've done, like Alien, obviously, or in fact, any of the mm. Alien films. Passengers, have you seen that? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, that's Jen- Jennifer Lawrence and Chris, Chris Pratt. Pratt. Yeah, you know, two, two people I love. Um, and they're, they're great in that. The Avatar sort of dealt with status. And Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, Austin Powers, it did as well. So how typical, how <laughs> typical right. of me to, to take Interstellar and, and mention Austin Powers. Quite. But um, no, I didn't Ruby, see baby. I, one of my favourite quotes from Austin Powers was, hey, there you are. And he's like, hi, do I yeah. know you? No, but that's where you are. You're there. You're there. It's, 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 such, it's almost a really shit joke, but I, <laughs> I loved it when I first It's saw done it. with real charm, though, isn't it? It is done with charm, yeah. And that's, that's the last of Austin Powers now. I'm sorry to even bring it up. Um, th- this was a deeply sentimental, emotional film you're talking about, and I'm sorry to have taken it down, Austin Powers. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I need to see Interstellar. Uh, I'll take your warning. So I'll add it to the list cautiously because I am the type to get incredibly emotionally attached to things. And that maybe brings me into, into my number four. Ooh. So, right, where are we in terms of time? Yeah, it's so good that we divvied these episodes up like we have because I've got a lot to say about this film. Okay. Are you ready? I think I might be. <clears throat> right, my number four came out in 1973. Wow which was the year of Dark Side of the Moon. And, um, and it's safe to say that this, this had just as big an impact on the world, that, if not more so than that album. And as long as the arts in general live on, that this will always be considered a classic. Now, in, in Signs, we talked about a film that like, subjectively scared me more than anything else. And I think I'm talking objectively with this one because this is undoubtedly considered a horror and, and quite possibly the most famous and indeed possibly even the scariest of horror of all time. And can you guess what I'm talking about, Lars? Uh, I'm, in my mind, I can't think past Psycho. Okay, it's not Psycho. Okay. So if you think about horror, and I, I suppose to horrify, right, if you want to literally use the, the terminology. And I think this remains for me the most horrifying film I've ever seen both in concept and execution. And back when we talked about Avatar, I think, we were talking about smashing mm. box office records and all that stuff. Um, oh, yes. And I, and I was thinking of this film then, but obviously I was reticent to say it because it would be a spoiler to, to where we are now. This film, when it, this film, when it came out, just obliterated like some box office records and things. And, and I think inflation adjusted, it, it's still right up there. And, uh, uh, well, let's just name it, because I haven't done yet, and I've talked about this already for about a minute. (laughs) My God, how long am I going to be talking about this film for? Right. Oh! I am talking about... Go on. Jaws? No. Jaws? No. No? Oh! Some people have probably been screaming this out. I don't know. We're talking about The Exorcist. Right, yes. So... This, well, my good Lord, where do I start with this? There's so much to say about this film. Right, well, I mean, there's a lot that I could say that's obvious, and I'll try and avoid that for obvious reasons. Hmm. This, because this is such a well-known film. It's based oh, on... Iconic. Yeah, it, it's based on, on the novel of the same name by uh, William Peter Blatty. And then it was brought to the screen a few years later by William Friedkin. And, of course, it largely focuses on a family in Georgetown in, in Washington and the possession of a young girl named Reagan. And it's, it's easy to think of that alone and to make her the star, as it were, but that is doing the most disservice and injustice to, to Blatty as an author 
because again you've got so many narratives going on here and, and each of them combined to make this the work of horror that it it really is and i'd almost rather focus on them than, than with with her and reagan so in that sense i do have to kind of discuss a bit of how some of the plot unfolds here because sure. it actually it actually starts in iraq with father merrin who's played by max von sidoff and actually special effects wise i suppose i've got to mention this this film came out in 1973 as i said and Max von Sydow, or Sidoff, as I think it's pronounced, was actually quite young at the time. But the the special effects, the, the cosmetic, you know, makeup that he was given to make him look about 70, 80 is astonishing. We talked about Jurassic Park compared to nowadays in terms of like effects. But that was that was CGI, whereas this is much more the physical cosmetic side of effects. I don't think I've ever seen someone be like to have to have put 40, 50 years put on someone in makeup mm. and make them look that much older and it be more convincing than this. And this is 1973. <laughs> I mean, and that's just, that's something no one really talks about, but I had to mention that. Uh, so, sure. Yeah, so Max von Sydow, who, who is not anywhere near the age that he appears to be in this film. But anyway, it starts with him uh, in Iraq, but then of course it jumps to Georgetown and you meet young Reagan, uh, she's maybe about the age of 13 or so. And her mum, Chris, who's a, a famous actor in the film. And their, their relationship is that kind of typical virtuous one where they're, they're like best friends, you know, the, the banter is so sort of pure. And like, But then, of course, things start getting a bit weird. We'll get back to that, because meanwhile, you've also got Father Karras, who is a younger priest than Father Merrin, who's in Georgetown at the time. And a bit like in, in Signs with, with um, uh, Father Hess, Mel Gibson's character, he's struggling with his faith. Father Karras has had a more scientific background, as a, trained as a psycholo bleh, psychologist, largely. And he has issues with his family, most notably his mum, who needs caring for, and he's not able to provide this as much as he would like. And a lot of the horror in this comes from that, down the line. But anyway, going back to Reagan, which is, of course, where most people think of this film. When things escalate, her mother's instinct, as it probably would be with most of us, I guess, as a mother, is to take her through like the medical healthcare system and try and ascertain what's going on, because that there are like mental and physical manifestations at this point with that, like a bed shaking and things like that. And of course, the physical ones are all but just dismissed by the doctors who say like, normal strength can happen during certain types of mental episodes. It's almost like a fob off to, to just keep things in tune with their diagnosis. And you very much get the sense of that when you watch it. And well, they, d they don't want to admit to themselves that it is anything else, do they? It's quite possibly that. Yeah, there's a lot of that permeating throughout this. And actually, um, around that time in the film, there's a scene like in theatre in the hospital where Reagan is having, I don't know the name of the procedure, but it's basically she's having like a catheter put into a, an artery in her neck. Surely that tells you enough. And um, especially if you're squeamish, because in fact, I think this is the scene in the film that caused like the most walkouts and fainting, because it is quite unflinching. But there are two other things that are really horrifying about this scene, Lars. So... In that scene, the, the, the assistant, the theatre lab assistant, whatever, who was a theatre assistant in real life, was actually a serial killer, unconvicted, <laughs> unconvicted of course, at the time, mm. but, um, but Freakin chose to cast actual medical professionals in this scene, and he accidentally cast a real-life serial killer, who I believe was in the process of doing so whilst this was being filmed. Uh, there's <laughs> another bit of pub trivia for you. 
But do you know what? Even more so than that, what makes this scene so uncomfortable for me is it's the it's the face of the poor mother, like Chris, watching through a window as her daughter is in clear distress by this invasive 1970s machinery that's doing this this procedure, whatever it's called, and the amount of blood that's being drawn, and it's this why is this happening? Why her? That is powerful. Mm. So to move on from there, once things don't get any better. And it's clear that scientific advice and indeed medication isn't appeasing anything at home. Then, of course, Chris, the, the, the mother, who is quite notably an atheist in the film, she starts to wonder at this point and she becomes increasingly agitated by the broken records that she's hearing from these doctors, you know. And I suppose while I'm talking about the mother, special mention must go to her. She's played by Ellen Burstyn. And she really conveys what it must be like for a poor mother to go through this with her only child and to not feel any credence or compassion for like what she knows is happening. She's seen it. That, mm. can't, that can't be easy to act. And it, it's incredible. And she's also in a film called Requiem for a Dream. And um, yeah. Oh, there, gosh. There, yeah, there, there's another film you wouldn't watch on Christmas Day, you know. <laughs> but Ellen Burstyn, once again, is brilliant in that. But anyway, back to the exorcist, because I've got to be conscious of how long I talk about this. when things really start to kick off we kind of get to these famous scenes that of course everyone thinks of and talks about but again at risk of sounding a bit pretentious I'd rather focus a bit more on the preceding bits a bit more because that's where the true horror comes from for me there's there's a party that's held at the house which which has two notable things that happen right one is that like the drunken antics of this guy called rather aptly named Burke who um, is, I think, the film director in the film that Chris is working with. That's how they know each other. We'll come back to Burke. Remember him, okay? Later on, there are a few remaining guests at the party sort of enjoying a rendition of something around a piano. And Reagan, like, stirs from her sleep and comes downstairs and and she says, like, you're going to die up there. And then, like, pees herself on the carpet in front of everyone. And this is typically a scene that gets satirised. Like, it scary Mm. movie did it. Um, yeah. But shake your ass. Yeah, I mean, but if you're (laughs) if you're yeah, and it's easy to laugh when you watch that film. But like if you're invested in the characters, of course, in this, the original moment where this thing happened, these moments are are just as horrifying as anything that follows. Because it's uh, do you remember when we talked about there was a zombie film you talked about last on the train? Uh, Train to Busan. Yeah. Okay, I remember we talked about like the, the horror being zoning in on those moments or honing in. It's like something's happening. It's a transition, almost on the turn. Yes. And in this case, that's happening. You know, that there's still some Reagan in there and she probably doesn't quite know why this is happening. And also her mother can still just about recognise Reagan in there too. And it creates these emotions in both of them, which are sufficiently well acted for us to feel them too. Like earlier in that night, actually, as her mum tucks her in, she says goodnight, you know. And then the moment she's out of the room, Reagan opens her eyes straight away. But the thing is, it's not like she's fully possessed just yet. It's more that she was just awake and that mm. something is happening. And and we know this, but like the, the poor mother didn't see that happen. And then so later on in that night, you know, we really feel for her when this is brought out in front of all her guests. And there's that additional social embarrassment on top of anything. Hmm. And slightly, slightly later on in the film, Burke, who I talked about, is actually entrusted as a babysitter to Reagan. And by this point, she's clearly not well. And we're actually told he died that night when he, because he's known as a drunk, you know, he apparently fell down the stairs outside the house and broke his neck uh, to the extent where it was facing the other way around, completely uh, 180 (laughs) degrees. 
no, that again for later. Right. Mm. So when things really start going wrong, uh, and of course, I won't go much into these scenes because everyone knows them, but arguably the most famous of all involves a crucifix. And I won't yeah. go again. I'll stay away from that a little bit. But after that, right after that, what we see is one of the most striking moments in the film, which is where Reagan's head turns around 180 degrees and that classic mm. shot, which we, we're all aware of. Now, if you haven't already guessed where I'm going here, this was not a cheap special effects gimmick that happened. This was very calculated and this was like written into the book. And what's happening is that the devil or the, or the demon that's in control of Reagan is actually impersonating Burke, who she killed. She, she pushed him out of the open window and killed him. And I think most people who watch this scene don't, don't clock that. They see the special effects moment and, and then they see her, her head turn around and go, you know what she did, your daughter? And they, they mm -hmm. don't quite register the true gravity of what that meant. She turned her head around to replicate what happened to Burke when his neck snapped, when he died. And then she impersonates his voice as well. It's horrifying when you realise that's what's happening. And um, so it's at this point Father Karras gets involved. I'll try and speed up from here, Lars. <laughs> I think I've covered what, <laughs> what constitutes the true horror in this film. But well, anyway. I'm just I'm trying I'm trying not to jump in on you because you you're doing such a good job. Well, I, I suppose I've got to continue where I am because I'm kind of running through it here, but in a way that I hope it, well, it's spoiler free, but it definitely for me <laughs> conveys where the horror lies in this film, and this is why it is for me the greatest horror. So, Father Karras comes in, and like I said he has this issue with his mum and also with his faith that he's grappling with. But he comes in, sees what's going on, and he talks about the protocol of like the church in these situations. And um, he's been roped in by, by the mum at this point. She's turned to, to faith and she's been recommended in Karis's direction. And he comes in, sees what's going on. And, and yeah, he talks about the protocol of the church. And this only compounds the horror and the misery because it would appear that they he's going to have to jump or they're going to have to jump through many hoops for the permission to carry out an exorcism. But for the sake of time, other things happen. And uh, so, yeah, he's granted permission to do this in apprentice to Father Merrill, who we haven't seen since the intro in Iraq. And so those two come together for the infamous final 20 minutes or so of the film to perform the exorcism. Mm. And I will not talk about that because I think <laughs> I've... I've already done enough to convey how visceral this film is. And I think I've set up the premise for this, but with the different narratives at play, you've got the young father questioning his faith. You've got the atheist mother. You've got poor Reagan, of course. And the thing is that they're all being targeted. It's not just Reagan. I mean, in fact, it's arg arguably more the others than her. You know, it's like she's the more the subject and less of the, the target. And so not considered one of the more horrifying moments in the film, if at all. Father Karras, there's a nightmare scene with his mum that maybe about halfway through the film. And on first viewing, this might not seem like something, that, it might almost seem like it was filmed on the side just to push up the running time if necessary to get it where it was needed and it could get left on the cutting room floor all too easily. But when you analyse what's happening in this dream he's having, the more you realise this is really like a true nightmare, a psychological nightmare. And now when I think about this film, I think about that scene more than most others. And so it's not just those famous scenes that we all think of that, you know, the likes of Scary Movie have made light of. And, and you know, I, who am I to have a go at them for doing so? I, I quite enjoyed the Scary Movie films. But I happen to think The Exorcist is, well, it's it's the only horror that's won the swathe of awards that it has, and deservedly so. But forget the horror elements. It's just a superb piece of writing from both Blatty in the first place and then from Friedkin in somehow translating it. 
And I suppose this actually, that brings me to perhaps a final point on this, Lars, and to you, the dear listener. <laughs> when this film first came out, like the theatrical release of 73, um, a couple of scenes were actually cut out by Friedkin, and this caused understandable anguish to Blatty, the author. He felt that these were like instrumental to the narrative. And this was like a rift, a huge fallout between them that went on for decades. And eventually, many moons later, because let's not forget, this film was banned for some time in the year. Yeah. But around 2000, I think, um, it was kind of reopened up to, to the world, or at least to the UK. And brackets, the version you've never seen was finally mm. released, where this is what you'd commonly call the director's cut. But the thing is, this isn't the director's cut. This is the author's cut. This is the original vision the author understood was going to be in the film the director's cut was actually the original theatrical release that cut these bits out so when you hear the words the, the version you've never seen don't think of it as a director's cut think of it as the original vision of the film basically and this is the one you should watch um it, i mean there, there's a certain scene in it which is quite famous but it had to be cut out from the original cut just purely because the technology wasn't good enough to mask the special effects which were at play um, which is a certain staircase scene Mm. but that makes it into the version you've never seen. So in summary, I know that like signs is personally for me, something that I think is terrifying, uh, but this deserves its pantheon status as the, like the, the ultimate horror, the scariest film ever. And anyone that thinks otherwise might be dwelling too much on the special effects of the seventies and haven't given enough thought to the holistic situation. Uh, the holistic, there's a word I've used a ton of times, maybe factor, <laughs> factor that into the drinking game if you want. And so, yeah, maybe haven't given enough thought to the situation of why these things are happening and the psychology of it. I mean, recent horrors, I said this before, insidious. Are you kidding me? Like, hmm. uh, so Babadook is, is good, but that's largely because of the, the psychological element with the, with the mother and hereditary is really good for similar reasons. But insidious, it relies on like the antithesis of what constitutes true horror for me, cheap. And uh, if you consider that scary, I don't want you as a listener. I'll go off and listen to something else. <laughs> but Bab Babadook and Hereditary are brilliant. Eden Lake is very, very good. The Descent is very good. That These are all worthy recent entries in the horror catalogue. So um, to finish on The Exorcist, anyway, uh, a masterpiece, <laughs> Mark Kermode's favourite film. And, um, and again, you know, I, I can't believe that there are three films I, I prefer. And Mark, if you're listening, um, I'd love to discuss The Exorcist with you because I, mm. um, I, I learned a lot through your analysis of this film at times that I didn't realise. And then when I went back and watched it again, it shone a whole new light on this. A pun not intended, because of course the iconic shot is that light shining out of the window. You know, the one mm. where The Exorcist arrives. And again, what an iconic a poster for a film and this is a film where the font that font, that purple font um the, and of the, course that the soundtrack as well well yeah i mean, I mean the interesting thing is of course that yes tubular bells my Caulfield, but that only appears once in the film and it, it's where uh, the mother chris is walking down the, uh, an autumnal street with the, the leaves blowing and that's the only time you hear that soundtrack there's very little in the way of soundtrack and, and that's what makes this so brilliantly polarizing and jarring it doesn't rely on on that kind of I'm not going to say gimmickry because Signs uses the soundtrack wonderfully without anything you know, like a gimmicky use of the soundtrack. But The Exorcist doesn't really use much in the way of soundtrack. There's a lot of dynamic between light and dark and, and loudness, loud noises, but it's not jumpiness for the sake of it. It's, it's done 
very cleverly and I know very deliberately from interviews and things I've seen with the likes of Friedkin who talked about you know how he wanted it to play out and this is a film that notably was plagued with issues throughout its, its production and filming I mean Apocalypse Now famously is the one that's had Lars if you haven't seen it watch a documentary called Hearts of Darkness mm. which the, the original book that Apocalypse Now is based on is called The Heart of Darkness I think that yes. if, if you want to see like um, just a problematic endeavour that film and it, the exorcist is up there with that because a lot of bad stuff happened during this and of course you know some documentaries t- tried to play up to this and injected this feeling of like hokum you know oh the film was cursed well forget that like, it was a film that went through an interesting set of hurdles that, that's what i'd say well i mean a, a film that i probably relate to it in the the sort of the problematic um shooting and 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 the film being cursed and that sort of thing uh, probably more more closely relate to Omen because that's a real film which I don't really want to dwell on, but at the same time it's it's got a real sort of history as um, weird things happening and uh, people dying in odd ways and sort of even people who are sort of you know cameramen and stuff who worked on the shoot you know with within a couple of years having you know finished shooting and then found themselves you uh, dying. Uh, in in truly mysterious circumstances. Yeah, and and those films as well, the actual films themselves, they're more disturbing and chilling, aren't they? mm. A bit like this is. And that's, that's for me, is what constitutes true horror. You've got other films, like Rosemary's Baby, you know, came out around this time, and that I find very chilling. And and, um, even Psycho, you know, got mentioned earlier, and stuff like that. I mean... Um, I mean, I I was going to speak briefly about, uh, because I remember you uh, uh, being a big fan of The Thing, the original Thing. Yes, and I know there'd been uh, a, a remake of that with sort of more modern style special effects. And that I've got no thing. interest in seeing it ever. The yeah. spe- the special effects in the original thing still hold up to this day wonderfully. I I well, prefer to just forget that this remake even exists of the thing because the original is perfect. I can't believe that it only was a mention. It didn't even make the top twenty. I think mm. quite possibly objectively that's the best horrors number one the exorcist which is my number four in terms of all my favorite films and the second best horror of all time is the thing the original thing it can't be improved uh particularly the special effects so i've got no interest in seeing this this remake mm. well i was going to say that the, the the point that i was trying to make is even though there were sometimes where I was a little bit like, ooh, that, you know, I'm not saying I would have found it more scary, and that's the important point of the point I'm trying to make, is that it's not about necessarily the effects. Rather, is this, is this, if the story is scary, then the special effects being intimidating, even if they're not absolutely optimal for the story you're trying to tell, or even compared to, say, modern standards, if the story is good enough, what, what you see on in front of you it has the impact regardless. You know, I, tr- I truly feel that. And I think it's the, the same with something like The Exorcist. Well, you know, some, say- some, of the, some of the effects in The Exorcist still hold up very well today and others maybe don't so much. And that's why maybe a thing is made of that. But the, whereas the thing t- totally does all the way through. But yeah, like you say, it's that the, the horror, the horror lies in having an understanding of the characters. And if you've paid attention to what's going on and, and then subsequently, you know why things are happening mm. and the symbology then you'll just see it for what it is, a horrifying moment. And you'll feel it. You'll feel it from poor Chris, the mother's point of view. And really, again, one final mention to Ellen Burstyn. She's so good in this. Um, 
a lot of the true horror comes from her reactions to this, to her, her daughter going through this. And um, yeah, uh, I could retread old ground, you know, saying more about this film. I think I, I, I think I've, I feel like I've captured it quite well there in terms of why this is the masterpiece that it is in filmmaking and also why it's scary and horrifying as it is. And for me, number four, <laughs> number four, you know, and, mm. and it deserves it. It deserves it. And so we'd probably better leave it there because my goodness, we've talked, we've only done two each in this episode and this is going to be the longest yet, I feel. So <laughs> uh, let's, I think what we're going to probably do, Lars, is, is go away, isn't it? And then we'll reconvene for the top three. The top three. I know. We have reached the mountaintop. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about these top three. Uh, oh, let's let's not even go into that right now. Let's just save that for down the line. So thank you very, very much for listening. Lars, do you want to close this out with anything in particular? Or? Um, I'd just like to say thank you again for, for listening, as, as my learned colleague, Mr. Hughes, has just uh, said. But also, I'd I, I just like to hope that everyone's enjoying these as, as much as we are indeed. We, we enjoy a good natter, but um, when, when we're really talking about things that are passionate for us, then um, it's not sure. It's, uh, it's a joy. And please do obviously continue listening. I'd be amazed if you if you backed out at this point, because, of course, we're at the top three now. <laughs> so, okay. on that note, Lars, ta-da, fare thee well, mate, and all that, yeah. Tatty bye. Tatty bye, mate. And uh, we'll reconvene for the top three very soon. Baby. Oh, yeah. All right, thank you once again. Goodbye. See you soon. God all right. <laughs> 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 <laughs>